The simple thesis I am proposing in my reflections is that there is not just one way of knowing, one epistemology, but multiple ways of knowing what we know. Or if there's actually only one way, it is certainly multifaceted, something like a prism. Any particular way of knowledge may be correct at any time, and all of them may at various points, either together or separately, be mistaken. Just as Jennifer Nagel pointed out at the beginning of this exploration, my reasoning, my logic may be correct or incorrect. My senses may be accurate or inaccurate. My gut feelings about something may be right on, or they may be completely off. Michael Polanyi, the Hungarian-British polymath and scientist, who made significant theoretical contributions to physical chemistry, economics, and philosophy, published an enormously influential book titled Personal Knowledge, in 1958. In it, he developed a way of knowing that he referred to as tacit knowledge. Polanyi proposed that human beings possess a nonverbal intelligence, a tacit knowledge. He uses a number of analogies or examples in attempting to explain what he um, uh, means by tacit knowledge. But tacit knowledge can be thought of simply as the knowledge acquired through the totality of an individual's experience. A musician who can, only by ear, tell whether a trombone or a French horn is making a certain note, or distinguish whether a note, the same note, is being played by either an oboe or a clarinet, is demonstrating tacit knowledge. Or a skilled wine connoisseur who can taste, who can, uh, who can uh, by taste, uh, identify the region, often the year, and sometimes even the very vineyard a glass of wine came from, evidences a high level of tacit knowledge that amazes amateur wine tasters. Both the wine connoisseurs and the musician's expertise is easily verifiable, but neither can explain how they know what they know. So, tacit knowing is knowledge which cannot be put into words. Polanyi famously said people know more than they can say. He was indicating both that all our experiences create a volume and depth of knowledge within us, and that this knowledge created by our experiences is impossible to fully articulate. One of the most famous examples of this is the pineapple. The European discovery of the pineapple was made by Columbus and his crew in 1493. The pineapple grew at that time exclusively in South and Central America and in the Caribbean, where Columbus and his crew landed. So among the stories, the 
early explorers and sailors brought back to Europe from the New World were stories of this exotic and delicious fruit, pineapple. Even for some time after pineapples began to be brought back to Europe, few people had the opportunity to actually taste one. Speculation as to what a pineapple tastes like was the subject of many conversations at many parties in the late 15th century Europe. The gap between the pineapple's fame and the difficulty of satisfying curiosity as to its taste came to epitomize the very nature of knowledge itself. In his On Human Understanding, published in 1690, the empirist philosopher John Locke used the pineapple to argue that true knowledge can only be based on experience. He wrote, If you doubt this, see whether you can, by words, give anyone who has never tasted pineapple an idea of the taste of that fruit. He may, Locke argued, approach a grasp of it by being told of its resemblance to other tastes of which he already has an idea in his memory imprinted there by things he has taken into his mouth. But they merely raise up in him other simple ideas that will still be very different from the true taste of the pineapple. But let's say if you worked at it really hard and were able to describe the taste of fresh pineapple, maybe by describing scientifically how the chemical makeup of pineapple and taste buds interact with each other to produce the particular physiological response or responses or sensations when people eat it. Even the, perhaps those in the pleasure center of the brain. You will actually have explained the taste of pineapple to no one. You will only have reduced it to something quite meaningless, irrelevant, and boring to most people. <clears throat> Your efforts. Like much of the current academic thought in biblical and theological studies will have been reductionistic. And where matters that are far more important than the taste of pineapple are concerned, this sort of materialistic, pseudo-scientific, and pseudo-objective thinking tends to boil the real meaning and mystery right out of everything. It is impossible to explain love or beauty or loneliness as a biochemical process. You can do it, but the explanation is pretty meaningless. And if we heard such an explanation, most of us would simply respond uh, out of our experience of love and beauty by saying, 
No, that's not what I mean at all. We know more about love and beauty and loneliness than we can say. Rather than being derived from formal principles of reason or logic alone, tacit knowledge includes intuition, hunches, con connoisseurship, uh, the apprehension and appreciation of beauty, gratitude, awe, and wonder. It is, at least at the deeper levels, more inductive than deductive and requires passion and commitment. It is more implicit than explicit. It is a mind-body experience. That is, it involves the whole person. It involves the constant integration of uh, the person of the knower, mind, body, emotions, consciousness, subconsciousness. And it requires the active and passionate participation of the knower. Now, I emphasize again, Polanyi, who was a scientist and mathematician, was not attempting to argue that logic and rational thinking, that scientific methodology do not matter, but that there is much more that has to be taken into account in the quest for knowledge. So tacit knowledge finds that practical knowledge precedes the knowledge of rules, of rules of logic. You, you have to possess a certain amount of practical knowledge, of tacit knowledge, before you can even begin to apply the rules of logic. And practical knowledge, our, our knowledge of the very use of language, for example, is gained through experience, including customs and traditions. Furthermore, tacit knowledge takes into account that rules of logic, for example, are not arbitrary. They are actually explanations. No one sat down and wrote a list of what would be required for an idea to be considered logical. Rather, over time, people observe that speakers and writers, leaders and friends and members of their own family made a lot of sense when they when what they said could be described as possessing certain characteristics and conversely made no sense whatsoever when those characteristics were lacking or disregarded. Or they possess other contrary characteristics. So again, you have to possess a certain amount of tacit knowledge, experiential knowledge, before you can even begin to understand formal logic. Notice also that knowledge as formal logic or philosophical mathematics can be learned in a relatively short time, in a single course of study, or if one wants to be able to teach it, then learned in a PhD program, which is still a relatively short period of time in which to learn it. Tacit knowledge, however, requires time experiential 
expertise, spiritual expertise, comes with a long walk in one direction. Or as Glenn Chestnut put it, tacit knowledge is based on expertise born of long experience. There is an interesting example of all this in C.S. Lewis's science fiction novel, Out of the Silent Planet. In that novel, the character of Ransom has difficulty at his arrival on the planet Malacandra in telling what the objects he sees actually are. At first, Random sees nothing but colors that refuse to form themselves into things. Moreover, he knows nothing yet well enough to see it. You cannot see things, Lewis writes in explanation. You cannot see things till you know roughly what they are. That fits, I think, fairly well with tacit knowledge as requiring a certain amount of experiential knowledge to begin with. Where religious belief is concerned, Polanyi said, it cannot be grasped by atomizing it, by treating it as if it were made up of many discrete little units and reducing it to minute elements for study. It must be understood holistically. When we are able to see anything, an idea, a belief, a scientific experiment, a natural event, a biblical text, in a way in which all the parts come together, fit together, work together, then what we are looking at will be larger and greater than the mere addition of all its parts, greater than the sum of its parts. Notice this. The very notion that something can be greater than the sum of its parts is tacit knowing. We know without putting it into words what it means that our family, for better or worse, is more than the sum of all its members. It's all there in Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, Flower in the Crannied Wall. Uh, it, it takes tacit knowledge to understand this little poem. Flower in the Crannied Wall, I pluck you out of the crannies. I hold you here, root and all, in my hand. Little flower, but if I could understand what you are, root and all and all and all, I should know what God and man is. Glenn E. Chestnut, professor of history and religion at Indiana University, has studied and written extensively on the spirituality of Alcoholics Anonymous, and in his book, God and the Spirituality, Physical Philosophical Essays, argues that spiritual knowledge is tacit knowledge and is verifiable as an expertise we can actually see at work in life. One of my favorite examples, one that always comes to my mind, 
is that of Harry Tebow, who was the medical director of the prestigious and privately owned Blythewood Sanitarium in Greenwich, Connecticut. Although Blythewood was primarily a facility for the wealthy mentally ill, it also provided residential psychiatric treatment for affluent alcoholics. Tebow tried every conventional psychiatric intervention he knew with one of his alcoholic patients, but nothing helped. Her self-destructive drinking continued unabated. She was aggressive, suspicious, hostile, uh, and at odds with everything and everyone, including herself. In 1939, Tebow received an advanced copy of the book Alcoholics Anonymous and gave it to her to read. She was at first repulsed by what she saw as its overbearingly religious message and told Tebow that she could never accept it. Tebow encouraged her to keep reading anyway. Eventually, she had an epiphany and began to apply the book's principles the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. Her whole personality underwent a complete and radical reorientation. She was more in synchronization with life and others. Her inner turmoil, anger, and dissonance replaced by a sense of peace, equili equilibrium, uh, sanity, and the ability to remain sober. Utterly astonished by this change in her character structure, Tebow began a rigorous scientific study of the case. His study, along with his continued work with other alcoholics, led him to the conclusion that if the alcoholic could acknowledge a power greater than self, that step alone could free him or her from bondage, provided he or she could do so without resentment. The knowledge acquired by Tebow's patient was tacit knowledge. And what Tebow discovered was tacit knowledge. A second example um, I think of is that of Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl, the young Jewish psychiatrist who survived four years in the nightmare that was Auschwitz, talked about the spiritual principles that not only helped him to survive, but to transcend the death camp. He learned, he said, to ask himself not what he expected of life, but what life expected of him. He realized the first day that here in the midst of cruelty and barbarity and brutality and fear was the opportunity to not just write about his theories, but to live them. And he came to know that Nietzsche was right. Whoever has a why, whoever has grasped or been grasped by a deeper meaning beneath life, can endure almost anyhow, can survive and transcend unimaginable suffering. This, too, is verifiable 
tacit knowledge. A third example is that of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was an atheist and a communist, an artillery lieutenant in the Russian army battling the Germans at the front when he was arrested by Smirsch, arrested for a private letter he wrote to a friend criticizing Stalin. He was sentenced to the Siberian Gulag with the expectation that there, within 10 years, degraded, dehumanized, deprived of food, given rags rather than protective clothing, without warm shelter, beaten and inhumanely worked, he would die. But his prison experience with Christians, who seemed to him connected to some deeper knowledge and wisdom, sustained by the practice of some transcendental faith, hope, and love, led him to become an Eastern Orthodox Christian, a man of heroic proportions and uncommon wisdom. Over and over and over again, the power and reality of a tacit spiritual knowledge has been demonstrated in the most practical in the most pragmatic ways possible. I believe then that the more a person recognizes ways of knowing that include and also transcend formal logic and scientific methodology, enlightenment thinking and rationalism, the greater will be the change within and the more profound his or her growth in wisdom, that what is known in this way will, over time, connect and cohere at ever deeper and deeper and deeper levels. One of the things I am confident of through tacit knowledge is that love is unfathomable. Its depths have no bottom. Its heights are immeasurable. Love, as the Apostle Paul put it, has no end. So in the next podcast, I want to think about love as a legitimate way of knowing.